Anyone familiar with the wildfires wreaking havoc on the West Coast probably knows that fire season today, in 2021, is vastly different than it was 20 years ago. Here's Dan Urias, a battalion chief with the Fresno County Fire Department. On average, fire season around the Sierra uh, Mountains is increased by 75 days. You know, younger in my career, you know, we would be looking at a six-month season. Now we have what we call a, per- a perpetual fire season. And you might have some idea as to why. It's really two factors that are coming to play. It's climate change and it's the densification of our forests, the high field loads that we're seeing in our forests today. So you take either one of those and they're a pretty significant stressor on the system. But you put them together and they work almost synergistically to increase the scale, the intensity, the severity of our fires that we're seeing today. That was Mark Meyer, an ecologist with the U.S. Forest Service. The effects on the environment are clear. Huge swaths of lush green forest, now barren moonscapes, ecosystems destroyed. And in the last two years, thousands of beloved giant sequoias have been reduced to ashes. But increasingly, according to Dan Urias, these fires are impacting much more than just the natural landscape. Anyone in California knows that wildfires ravage the state consistently it is it is having a toll on on you know fire personnel and and the general public from kvpr this is escape from mammoth pool i'm carrie klein For today's episode, the seventh and final installment, I'm addressing the elephant in the room, that the emergency at Mammoth Pool Reservoir last September didn't happen in a vacuum. Wildfires are getting bigger, faster, more intense, and so-called megafires, like the Creek Fire, are putting people and infrastructure more at risk than ever. I've been chatting with lots of experts, firefighters, foresters, researchers, first responders, and to share what they told me, I'm talking again with Kathleen Schock. You met her in an earlier episode. She's the host of KVPR's Valley Edition. Kathleen, welcome back. Carrie, thank you for having me. I I think the effects of wildfires are such an important topic right now, and I'm really excited to talk about what you've learned from all your reporting on this project. So, First off, can you begin by recapping how wildfires and wildfire season have been changing in California over the last few years? Yeah, well, first off, wildfire season is just longer than ever. I mean, you you heard that at the top from Dan Urias. He's a battalion chief and public information officer for both Fresno County Fire and Cal Fire. And that's the state agency that responds to wildfires. And so this extended season falls not just in the summer and fall, but also it starts earlier in the spring and stretches into winter. I mean, just last year, the Creek Fire itself lasted three and a half months and wasn't fully contained until Christmas Eve. You know, and next, more and more acres are being burned. In California, acreage burned by wildfires um, set records in 2008, then 2018, and then again in 2020. Already this year, almost 2 million acres have burned, which is going to set up 2021 to have at least the second highest burn acreage on record. 
Then fires are burning hotter and more intensely than ever. You know, typically wildfires would take out the underbrush and lower branches of trees, leaving green treetops. But now the fires are consuming entire trees. And that's why so many giant sequoias are now succumbing to fires, even though they survived weaker wildfires for hundreds of years. Then there's the weather. Meteorologists are observing that fires are creating their own weather systems, including these huge, dirty atmospheric formations known as pyrocumulonimbus clouds. They create their own thunder, rain, and lightning. Last year, the Creek Fire created one of the biggest ones ever observed in the Northern Hemisphere, and already this year, many others have been observed throughout the West. Wow. I, I think most of us were aware that things had been getting bad, but it's shocking to hear all of that put together. And obviously, as you alluded to, there are human costs of these fires, too. Absolutely. And that is where some of the biggest concerns are. I mean, these fires wouldn't have the same urgency if they were in completely remote areas of wilderness, but they're becoming more and more of a problem in the so-called wildland urban interface, this transition zone between the built environment and nature where so many of us are putting houses and communities. And so that's why, even though it's rare, we have tragically seen fires wipe out neighborhoods and even entire towns. You know, in just the last five years, we've set records in California for the deadliest, most destructive, and most expensive fires in state history. For example, in 2018, nearly 100 people died in wildfires, mostly civilians, and almost 23,000 structures were completely destroyed, mostly homes. That's thanks largely to the campfire, which infamously destroyed the town of Paradise. Then in terms of destruction, 2017 was the most expensive year. Cal Fire estimates that wildfires caused $1.2 billion in damage. And in 2020, firefighting efforts were the costliest ever at $1.3 billion. Unfortunately, the list of human impacts continues with public health. I mean, thanks to intense smog and wildfire smoke, you know, most of us in the West are now very familiar with air quality issues. And in fact, some recent data reporting out of KQED showed that in some parts of the West, wildfires have quadrupled the number of hazardous smoky air days compared to just 10 years ago. Plus, there's the mental health toll. You know, evacuating your home can be traumatic. In some places, it happens over and over again, not to mention the tragedy of losing your home or a part of your community. And Battalion Chief Dan Urias says this is all taking a toll on firefighters, too. We've noticed that with our employee support services being called upon more frequently by our employees. Employees are you know, looking for more time off when they do get back from, from these campaign fires just so they can get back to a sense of normalcy. So you say megafires wouldn't be as urgent without the risk to people, but I imagine the argument could be reversed, too, that without people in the wildland-urban interface, that wildfires wouldn't have evolved to be so severe. Yeah, that's right. And that speaks to this densification that Forest Service ecologist Mark Meyer talked about at the top of this interview. So forests right now, in general, are overly dense because around a century ago, we as a society began regularly suppressing fires, partly to protect these settlements that were creeping further and further into forests. And that was a big change from almost all of California's history before that, especially from before colonization, when many indigenous peoples recognized the importance of regular fires for forest health. 
And these fires were more frequent, but they were not as intense as we see now. They were smaller, lower to the ground. Um, as I said earlier, they'd burn shrubs and the lower branches of trees, but there wasn't enough fuel, as foresters say, for the fires to consume everything to the tops of the trees. And that's why so many trees could survive fires by being charred on the bottom 10 feet, but still green on top. Now, Mark says, the fact that these forests have gone, you know, 100 years without these fires is a huge deal. These forests burn oftentimes every decade or two in many of the, our different forest types. What we're seeing is that many of these forest ecosystems have lost or missed, we'll say, about five to ten of these natural fire return intervals. Without regular fires, forests have more trees than they used to, more shrubbery and other fuel near the ground, and more branches, which help fires travel up through the canopy. Okay, so that helps explain why forests are so dense, but that can only be a part of the story because, of course, there's climate change. Absolutely. It's it's hard to quantify the role of climate change in our intensifying wildfire season. You know, climate change doesn't cause wildfires, just like it doesn't cause the extreme weather and lightning that can spark fires. But climate change contributes to all of that. You know, it intensifies processes that, that are already happening. And unfortunately, these have all set off a chain reaction that's deadly for forests. You know, temperatures are rising during the day and at night which is making droughts more intense and longer lasting than they used to be. There's a lot less snowpack, so trees are competing for less water. Then thirsty trees are weaker and less able to protect themselves from things like bark beetles, which killed off millions of trees in the High Sierra during the previous drought about a decade ago. Then those millions of standing dead trees were just perfect fuel for the fires that would come along. So this whole series is about campers, people using a recreation area in the wilderness who were trapped there by a fast-moving wildfire. Knowing that megafires are more common than ever and not likely to stop anytime soon, are people in the wilderness more at risk than before? Well, if you listen to last week's episode, Jack Haskell with the Pacific Crest Trail Association is very concerned about this, you know, based on the worried phone calls he fields with hikers. But I think the answer to that question is more complicated than just a yes or no. For instance, there's no clear answer in the data. That's partly because rescues are not all that common to begin with. The National Guard managed the Mammoth Pool Rescue last year, but actually the California Highway Patrol is often the first agency called in for wildfire rescues. So I spoke with Jeff Andrees. Uh, he's a CHP helicopter pilot um, who said that since 2017, his agency has responded to about 10 calls for wildfire-related aerial operations. A couple examples of that is we've had a couple of rescues of fire personnel. Um, but we've had multiple calls where we have uh, assisted with hikers up in the mountains who become lost uh, due to either the fires and the smoke itself or fire damage uh, to the trails. He is concerned about wildfires sneaking up on people on the trails, but he says his agency and others are proactively trying to prevent those situations. For instance, some of those calls he talked about were actually when a helicopter flew to a remote area, perhaps without cell service, and they used the chopper's PA system to, to tell hikers and campers, you know, to broadcast to them that they needed to evacuate. And then there were the few weeks last month that the Forest Service shut down national forests around the state. 
And Dries says those serve two purposes. Yes, they reduced the risk that people could accidentally spark a fire, but they also reduced the number of people potentially in harm's way should a fire have started. And I understand you spoke with a researcher who's been studying some other effects of wildfires on recreation areas. Yeah, that's right. Jose Sanchez is an economist with the Forest Service who studies how people use forest land and how wildfires and climate change could change that. For instance, wildfire smoke is a major health problem, as we already said, especially for communities near forests, but also for recreation areas themselves. And Jose talked about a study published recently um, on how wildfire smoke affected people camping at Yosemite National Park. They noticed that a lot of um reservations weren't canceled. People were willing to sacrifice air quality, but this is like a campsite that is highly in demand. He also noted that in some ways, wildfires present a social justice issue because often when parks or recreation areas are closed due to fires or smoke, many people will just drive further to a different recreation area. But communities with less access to cars or less time to travel won't be able to. And those are often Latinx and other communities of color. Carrie, I got to say, this all sounds like such bad news. Is there any hope for our forest or for the communities affected by these devastating wildfires? Well, you know, I I think so, yes. I mean, many people that I spoke with, even though they're delivering this bad news, they're actually very hopeful, you know, very optimistic that this ship can be turned around. One of those people is Julianne Stewart. She's a registered professional forester. She lives and works up near Shaver Lake in the Sierra Nevada, northeast of Fresno. Before the Creek Fire, she had been working on a 160-acre development near Shaver Lake known as Rock Haven. She had helped the residents there get a grant from the state for what she calls treatments. They thinned the trees, they ground up a lot of the fuel near the ground in order to prep the land for a wildfire. And sure enough, when the Creek Fire hit that property, the fire lost intensity, it stayed low to the ground, spared a lot of the really tall trees, and also spared the historic homes in that development. You can actually see the dividing line between the charred, untreated forest and Rock Haven, where Julie had managed these forest treatments. All in all, they've been really effective to where the fire might have moved through them, but you have green trees standing. And I think that just points to the fact that if we can do this at a larger scale, we really would have different outcomes when these fires start. Julie says these specific treatments are expensive, around $2,000 per acre. That's obviously not feasible on every acre of forest land, but she and many other forest managers believe that with the proper resources, they can strategize which pieces of land are most important for saving lives and property. And if they get in there, they know how to harden them against fire. It may be expensive, but Julie says it's worth it because it's so much easier to protect a piece of land against a devastating wildfire than it is to try to restore it afterward. I think that as a state, everybody is looking at that right now and realizing the value of doing these treatments ahead of the fire because you might spend the same amount of money, but you're left with a beautiful green forest instead of an ashen moonscape that is going to be really difficult to recover from. Well, Carrie, this series has been extraordinary. Thank you so much. Thank you, Kathleen. I appreciate it. That is today's episode of Escape from Mammoth Pool. This was the final installment of the series, but don't unsubscribe just yet. We may have some bonus episodes coming up later this fall. 
This episode was reported and produced by me, Carrie Klein, and edited by Alice Daniel. Music by Kevin McLeod, web support from Alex Burke, and engineering support from Don Weaver. This has been a production of KVPR, NPR for Central California. Thank you so much for listening.